This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the 25th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And with us tonight is Sonia Nazario, a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer, author of the book, Enrique's Journey, the Story of a Boy's Dangerous Odyssey to Reunite with His Mother. The book is an extension of a series that she did with the Los Angeles Times, and now she writes about human rights issues in general for the New York Times and elsewhere. And even though this book came out 14 years ago, it feels as if it were written for today's times. Sonia Nazario, welcome to the Writers' Symposium by the Sea. Thank you, Dean. I'm delighted to be here. I read Enrique's Journey a long time ago. I reread it in anticipation of your time with us. And this is a book that is selected still for common reads in, uh, in communities and library groups, high schools, first-year college experience groups. Um, why do you think this book has resonated for so long? It, it just feels like it was written for today. You know, I, I think it has certain elements that all good stories have. It, has, um, it, it, it moves you on an emotional level, which is the main thing I look for in stories I tell. It has a universal theme of a boy who's willing to go through a hostile world to reach his mother. Um, it has a question you want answered. Is he going to make it into his mother's arms? It has conflict. It has interesting characters. It takes you into worlds that you might not otherwise see, the top of a freight train in Mexico. Um, but, you know, I think the, the, the story of children migrating alone uh, has grown in terms of its importance. Last year we had 76,000 children who arrived at our border unaccompanied, alone, no parent by their side, coming largely from these three countries in Central America, primarily the country he came from, uh, Honduras. And so you have the largest number ever, and while the circumstances pushing these children out of these countries has changed, the journey has gotten worse, uh, their arrival to the United States has gotten less welcoming. Uh, fundamentally, it's a, it's a very similar story of, of uh, these children and what they go through to get to their parents here in the United States. That has not changed. 76,000 Enriques. And those are the ones that, that, that turn we, themselves in yeah, or, that we know or call of. that we know of. So it's at, at least that. Um, Wow. But, you know, I'm, I'm even thinking about your background. It just seems like this kind of engagement in writing and writing about these kinds of issues is sort of in your DNA. And I, I just think when you were 14 in Argentina and you saw some blood on the street, tell us what that meant. So my father had died, and my parents were both immigrants, uh, really from other places, but they ended up young in Argentina. And my mom decided when my father died, we were living in Kansas, to take us back to Argentina. 
Uh, it was very terrible timing on her part because it was the beginning of the so-called dirty war in Argentina where the military was about to take power and they were uh, killing, they were disappearing large numbers of people, about 30,000 over the coming few years. And of course the first people that they went after are the storytellers, the people who write the first draft of history, those of us, journalists. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think, you know, as we're seeing to some degree, I think, in this country, not to get too political too soon, but uh, we want some people in power want one narrative. And if you have any kind of narrative that challenges that narrative, you have to get rid of that. And I think that's what we saw in Argentina. Was uh, to, to, I was walking down the street uh, with my mother, and two journalists had been murdered down the street from where we lived. I asked my mom, what happened here? I saw a pool of blood. And she said, well, they killed these two journalists. And I said, why? And she said, well, they were trying to tell the truth about what's going on here. And I was only 14 years old, but I instantly saw that, uh, you know, people didn't really react to what was happening because they didn't understand the magnitude of what was happening all around them. And that... Uh, whether it's there or here, you need to have a vibrant, if you want to have a vibrant democracy, you need to have a vibrant press, I fear what has happened to our press in this country, that is willing to take people in power and hold them accountable for what they are doing. Well, I'm, I'm totally with you on all that. I'm still fixated on you as a 14-year-old looking at a pool of blood from right. journalists right. and you making a decision. It, it's not the choice most people would make staring at a pool of blood. <laughs> so what was the choice you made? Yeah. I decided in that moment, I am going to be a journalist. I am going to be a truth teller. That's how I see journalists. I don't see us as the enemy of the people, uh, a term that the Nazis used to describe Jews. Um, I, I believe that we are there to try to write what is actually happening, and that's uncomfortable for me at times. I have certain biases that I have to leave at the door, and sometimes when I wade into an issue, it's different than my preconceived notions. But that's what we are trained to do as journalists. You know, I should say that um, my, my nickname since I've been th three years old has been La Granuja, which means the troublemaker. And, uh, oh, yeah, so, my, my first so we drawing can kind of see where this went. was yeah. of me holding two glasses of whiskey and when I was three. And my mom said, why do you need two glasses? And I said, well, when I finish the first glass, I'm going to start chugging the second glass. So I have liked stirring the pot, as you've probably seen today in our other discussions, from a young age. Yeah, yeah, I have seen that. Um, but I'm, I want to go back to you as a 14-year-old kid. You see this pool of blood and you say, okay, that's, sign me up. You know, a lot of people would look at a pool of blood and say, hmm, I think I might go into engineering. I might, maybe accounting is for me. Uh, but you, you signed up for journalism as a result of that. That, that says something about you. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, well, I, I think, and as you've said, it's is you want to get in the thick of it. You want to you want to tell about it. I want to tell about it. I want to tell important stories. I want to tell big stories, which I fear the media doesn't do enough these days. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've won more than just a Pulitzer Prize uh, uh, for your journalism. You've won a number of human rights uh, awards, helping to get lawyers for unaccompanied migrant children. I assume that the 
the telling of the Enrique story awakened some of this stuff in you to get involved. Is that accurate? Well, so I went into journalism as an act of activism, I think. And then uh, as I started working my first job at 21, I'm told I'm the youngest reporter hired at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, wise newspapers editors beat that activism out of me mm-hmm. because um, if you know, as, as, as you know, if we wade into an issue, it's really important to leave our baggage at the door. And if people think that you're biased or have preconceived notions, half of America won't talk to you and it'll affect your very ability to get that story. So there are very clear reasons why we are not activists. Um, I, I was in many sense, senses an activist in what I chose to write about. Um, I mean, I was, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal writing about social and social justice issues. There were not many of us <laughs> at the Wall Street Journal, you know, doing those things. And um, I think even the stories, you know, I, I chose to write about women, Latinos, the poor, uh, children. Drug uh, addiction, poverty, domestic violence. This is all stuff you wrote about. All stuff I wrote about. Uh, so I think in what I chose to, I mean, journalists make choices every day about what we ignore and what we write about. And even in writing about things, I often gave, um, you know, many people um, their point of view in stories. Uh, I wrote here in San Diego about how increasingly, I wrote a story about hunger among school children and how increasingly uh, school districts were being dominated by members of the religious right and were not availing themselves of federally funded breakfast programs because they said a parent should be able to feed their child breakfast. That's a parent's responsibility, not the government's responsibility. Well, I showed how this was playing out in schools. I think one of the first school districts to do this was Encinitas. I showed how this was playing out with hungry children who were focusing on their bellies, not their heads, and how there was a long line of children outside the school, uh, the nurses' station in the morning grasping their stomachs and their heads. They weren't sick. They were hungry, and how this affected children's ability to to learn. Uh, that showed very clearly the the point of view of conservatives. But you couldn't read that story and come away thinking that it it was anything but completely idiotic not to feed children uh, federally funded breakfast programs. And after that story came out, that series, California went overnight from a third of schools feeding breakfast to two thirds of all public schools feeding uh, breakfast. In this state. So, um, so, so I, I've, uh, thank you. I've had an evolution to becoming uh, an advocate. It's been a very torturous one because our training is so strong that you don't do that. Um, But I think when this book came out, it was many students at universities who said, you know, you're telling us to be an advocate on these issues. What are you doing? And I waited in very gingerly, uh, joining a nonprofit that provides pro bono lawyers to uh, unaccompanied immigrant children, children who come here alone, who have to stand before an immigration judge with no lawyer by their side. And I went to immigration court in Los Angeles, and I saw a seven-year-old standing before the judge. The government doesn't provide that child an attorney, and 60% of them can't afford an attorney. So you have these children being asked to argue these complex 
legal asylum cases, uh, when the government has a lawyer arguing why that child should be deported, it's, it just seemed mind-boggling to me. I could not understand how could any American be for this. This is a sham. I mean, we have mm-hmm. babies going to court alone, being expected to argue their asylum cases. And so I started wading in in that way. And over the last decade, I would say, um, I've said things increasingly very clearly that I believe that we are a nation that should um, uphold our laws that were passed after World War II, that we should protect people running from harm. We should protect refugees. Mm-hmm. We should protect asylum seekers. We should not send people back to their deaths. So I've taken a very strong stand which is unusual for journalists, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things that you've said over the years that just made so much sense to me was really the investment that we should be making is not as much on our border, but in those countries, in, by those countries, I'm talking about Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, and saying that's where the investment uh, should go. And yet... We've, as a nation, we've invested billions of dollars in those countries, and it just seems like things have only gotten worse. So uh, what, what do you make of that? Well, I think many of the billions that we spent in previous years were more aimed at, you know, bolstering the military, bolstering... Um, you know, focusing on the war on drugs, which has been a completely failed war on drugs. I would say that it it was misspent on certain things that were more aimed at really focused on uh, strategic things, uh, bolstering uh, like our military base Mm -hmm. in places like Honduras and fighting this war on drugs. Um, But I would say that in why I argue for addressing the root causes of migration, I think right now, you know, Sometimes migration is pull factors. You have economic factors pulling people here for better jobs. But right now, what's really driving most migration are these push factors of this enormous violence in these six in ten people at our southern border are from these three tiny countries in Central America that are on fire, that have some of the highest homicide rates in the world. And I believe that uh, if we don't help address... uh, to lower violence, lower corruption, and strengthen government institutions in these places, you can't build a wall high enough to keep people out. Uh, Parents are trying to protect their children who are being forcibly recruited into gangs or girls who are being forced to be the gang leader's girlfriend. And what I saw uh, in 2015, the U.S. government decided, hey, maybe we should try addressing some of these issues, and we doubled foreign aid. I went to see, is this working? And I went to the most violent neighborhood in the murder capital of the world, San Pedro Sula, Honduras, in 2016. My husband, who's here, he just loves it when I go to these places. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, in, and there, what I saw was the U.S. had spent on outreach centers where kids can go after school to get away from the gangs. We took programs that worked in Los Angeles where you identify the nine risk factors of going into gangs, and if you have half of those, they put that kid into a year of family counseling, reduces 77% that kid's odds of engaging in crime or abusing drugs and alcohol. But I think most importantly, we went after the killers in these neighborhoods. In Honduras, like many of these countries, 96% of killers get away with it because 
If you step forward as a witness, the gang kills you the next day and they leave you in the middle of the street with sapo written on your chest, frog or a dead frog, or they cut out your tongue, which means if you talk, this is what's going to happen to you. We paid a U.S. nonprofit to go in and investigate all homicides in this neighborhood and convince people over months, uh, building trust, like let us help you. We're a Christian group from the U.S. We have nothing to do with that evil Honduran government. Can we get you? Can we help you move the body at the from the morgue? Can we get you coffee for the wake? Months into building cr- trust, they say, "Will you testify?" And they have people testify under a black burqa, sure. like you do in mafia trials in Italy. Mm-hmm. And doing all of these things, they were getting homicide convictions on more than half of all the homicides in this neighborhood. So this went from a neighborhood where six gangs controlled it with an iron fist, and uh, there were dead bodies on the street in the morning. One day, the, the gang had played soccer with the head of someone they had decapitated because they pay off the cops, so the cops weren't going to do anything. This went from this place to a place where in two years, homicides plummeted 62%. And now kids play on the street. With it, soccer balls. With, so, with real soccer yeah, balls. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it cut the number of children fleeing to our southern border in half. So this is a very controversial point of view. Many people on the left in the U.S. and in Central America say... Who is this idiot, Sonia Nazario, who's advocating for more foreign aid, for the U.S. to do more in these countries where we have a horrible history? We supported the wrong side on the Central American wars. We deported hundreds of thousands of gangsters that ignited a lot of this violence. A lot of the drugs uh, that we use in the United States, the illegal drugs, are coming through Honduras and fueling a lot of this violence. But I believe if for once the U.S. is actually doing something positive, sure. we should encourage our government to do more of that. You know, you, you just I'm, I'm just listening to you. I'm thinking, you of just course, re- Trump cut all this. Y- yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. OK. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, uh, you just you just write about the gnarliest stuff. Yes. Um, do, do, you, do you just get weary? I mean, do you ever just want to write about the, the new ride at SeaWorld? Or, or, it looks nice. Yeah, or puppy adoption or something like that. Do, do, do you ever just get completely spent thinking about all the stuff you write about? So at the Wall Street Journal, I used to alternate between these very serious stories and writing. I wrote a middle column story about the joys of okra once, uh, the vegetable. And it was actually one of the best stories I've written. (laughs) People still read it. Uh, So that brought some sanity to my life. I feel like I don't have that now. And it's a problem. Um, I I go from one dark topic to the other. I I feel a moral imperative right now to do this. I feel like I'm eight years behind on my current book, which sounds as, it's as disastrous as it sounds. Um, But I don't feel like I can walk away from this fight right now. I feel that what we are doing as a country, turning people away at the border that are fleeing this harm, saying, well, just wait in Tijuana or even worse in Nuevo Laredo for three to eight months while your court date comes up in the United States. Or now, uh, increasingly, we're saying uh, if you pass through any country on the way to the United States, you have to apply for asylum there. You know, let's have people apply for asylum in Honduras, which has one of the highest homicide rates in the world. I I feel that what our country is doing is wrong. Yeah. 
So here's the other thing I sense that you feel this imperative. And, and the term, uh, everything that I've read about yours, I just keep coming back to the same term, that you just feel compelled to bear witness. I do. That's, that's your job. Yes. And that's what you've taken, that's the mantle you've taken on yourself, is to just bear witness. You're bearing, you were bearing witness to uh, Enrique. You want to you tell the story of a kid who misses his mom. You, and, a, and you just want to bear witness. And a kid who's willing to do anything to get through all of these obstacles. Right. Of a, a story of really, in a way, the enormous determination that migrants bring to this country. I mean, there are issues, and I'm not... Oh, of course. I, I, I don't portray immigration as all black or all white. Uh, but I think one of the things that I saw on those train routes, uh, you know, I spent three months riding on top of freight trains through Mexico to tell this story, uh, was just enormous grit that someone who is willing to leave all that they know and love uh, and fling themselves into the unknown and go through this gauntlet to get to the United States, be beaten on top of this train, face rape, face uh, robbery, face all sorts of dangers. Uh, I think that grit that migrants bring is honestly what has helped lift up this country over many centuries and has helped make America great. Yeah, there's that great line from... yeah. You just made me think of that great line from Hamilton. Immigrants, we get the job done. We get the job done, <laughs> yeah, yes. So, so <laughs> this is... Um, the, 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 I want to come back to the bearing witness, though, and the importance of telling that story, because as I recall, even the, uh, the gangs who, that were and the military people who were protecting you when you went back and retraced Enrique's steps, they wanted this story told. Is that accurate? The gang, you mean the, in the, the, the gangs that you were encountering uh, when you were in, in Central America, they were, they wanted, the story that you were telling, they wanted this told as well. No, I don't think any of the gangs oh. really wanted my story told, okay. their okay. story told. Yeah, I think they largely tried to avoid me or uh, keep their eyes on. When I travel through these neighborhoods now, when I go back to Enrique's neighborhood, as I did last year to write about enormous corruption in Honduras, um, they're mostly keeping their lookouts at every street corner, and they're watching my every move. But you were also protected at certain points during, that, during your trip, right? During my journey, I was protected... Um, by a uh, Mexican uh, immigrant rights group, which at the time was armed, they didn't want to go on top of the trains with me because despite being armed, uh, they would get shot at by the gangsters that control the tops of the trains. Uh, but since I had a letter from the president of Mexico saying, be nice to this reporter, they agreed to come up on the trains with me. And I, I could see uh, on the train tops, usually there were 10, 10 or 20 gangsters on top of every train and they would roam from car to car and surround migrants and say, your money or your life. And uh, sometimes I would watch watch them throw people down to the churning uh, wheels below. Um, sometimes they would get close to me. I had six guys with AK-47s, only in the first of 13 states that I traveled through, which was hmm. thickest with the gangs at the time. And um, they, they, as they got closer, the guys with me shot off some rounds into the air, and luckily the gangs that time did not shoot back. But they okay. didn't like going... 
the, the immigrant rights group didn't like going on top of the trains because no. they would get shot at by the gangsters. And maybe that's the group I was thinking want, it, right. it was, was the group that wanted this story told right, right. Uh, as well. Right. Okay. You know, um, the, one of the saddest scenes in Enrique's journey is when he gets beaten and robbed and they take the piece of paper that has his mother's phone number in North Carolina. They take that and they just throw it away. Right. And it, it's like, how is this kid going to, how is this ever going to work out for him? I, that just struck me as so unbelievably sad. But I want to talk about Enrique just for a second because you had an editor who gave you some really good advice about picking a main character. Because you were afraid, because Enrique had some flaws. This was, this was no choir boy. No. Right? He had a lot of flaws, and he still does. Yeah, okay. So you were afraid that, okay, maybe he's not the perfect character because he's got some flaws. And you had an editor tell you, no, that's the, that's the kind of person we want. Do you remember what he told you? He said, um, the best characters in literature are not perfect little angels. They're deeply flawed. We are not perfect angels and we can't identify with someone who's perfect. Go with this kid. I was balking at going with Enrique because um, I had met him in northern Mexico. I had interviewed him on the phone. He had a lot of the elements I was looking for. Uh, but when I met him in Nuevo Laredo in, in, in northern Mexico, I discovered that he had started sniffing glue at a young age to numb that pain of having his mother leave him and go to the United States and never come back or send for him. Um, and so I thought that I needed a perfect little angel for readers to be able to identify with. So I started searching and searching for all these other kids that were coming through that church in Nuevo Laredo, but all of them had also been robbed of their slip of paper with their mama's phone number. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Enrique at least remembered one telephone number in Honduras he could call and get his mom's phone number in the United States again and keep going on his journey, which is what I wanted. Yeah. Um, and so I decided... Uh, you know, after searching for many other children, all of whom had lost their slip of paper and didn't think to memorize another number, that I would go with him. Um, he he is deeply flawed, and that creates some conflict now with the story because I go to universities across the country and I get approached by students who, you know, say, you know, why did you write about this schmuck? Uh, he's mm -hmm. one of the most famous immigrants now in the United States. His story has so been so widely read. Uh, I came up on top of the trains from Central America. I'm studying to be a doctor or an engineer or a, a lawyer. Why didn't you tell my story? And the truth is that with these kids who have been through so much trauma in their home countries and this incredibly difficult journey, and now with all the traumas they're facing in the United States, um, with this incredibly hostile environment towards migrants, um, I think that it's 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 just very um, you know it's it's uh, their their feeling is that I should have t told a more positive story. Some of them uh, kind of wallow in their trauma, like Enrique. He never really got out of a lot of his problems. Mm -hmm. um, many of these kids have what psychologists now call post-traumatic growth. So uh, let's see. I'm I'm not very good at singing. I'm not going to launch into Kelly Clarkson song. But basically, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And I think that's what 
happened to me when I, I had so many traumas when I was young um, with the death of my father, being moved from country to country, living through the dirty war in Argentina. Eventually, the military uh, abducted my sister and almost tortured her to death, um, killed one of my best friends. Uh, but all of that kind of made me more determined and more stubborn and bullheaded. At, my husband will attest to that. So, uh, <laughs> He'll, the second part of the interview, we're going to bring here. him up here. Yeah. <laughs> but but one of the things that I, I I think you did with this character, regardless of his flaws, is it just reminded me again of of uh, of a line from E. B. White where he says, "Don't write about man. Write about a man." Right. And so instead of, uh, don't write about immigration, write about an immigrant. Right. Write about an individual and tell that person's story. And that's what you did with Enrique's journey. And by virtue of my reading about him, I just feel like, oh my, I have, I have lived through just a small, small sense of this uh, because of what you did. And um, I just thought it was really, really well done, that you didn't try to give the global story of migration. No, my editors took that out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) My wise editors took that out. It used to be twice as long. Yeah, uh, but it was, that, that's what I appreciated. The other thing I appreciated about this book so much was the tone of the book. Yeah. This is the kind of topic where it would be so easy to get either super sappy or sensationalized, or outraged. The, the, the passion that you're giving off here in this uh, interview was not in this book. That's right. You just told his story, and you let me come to whatever conclusions I wanted to come to. So, my question is, did they just sort of beat that out of you in the, in the, in the, the editors, or did you want to write it so even-handedly? Was that intentional on your part? It was intentional. I am a firm believer that you do just intense reporting. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of uh, fly-on-the-wall reporting where you, maybe you sit and interview someone for three or four hours, but at a certain point you just shut up and you observe what they're doing and that some, some, the most powerful material comes from just watching someone and, and how they live their life and how they go about things and describing that. I mean, what, what my editors first told me, uh, the first mantra was show, don't tell. And that's something that all good reporters uh, live by. So I think it's, uh, I, you know, and I also believe, so I amass a huge amount of, um, of, of information, of scenes, of uh, compelling uh, data, but I try to let the, the, the information speak for itself. I feel like I'm building a house with these great bricks, and I'm putting one brick on top of the other. And I don't want to gild the lily. I don't want to club you over the head with emotion. I want that emotion to build. So when Enrique is finally, for example, about to reach his mother after eight attempts, 122 days, 12,000 miles, he's been kicked back uh, by Mexico, you know, seven times. This is his eighth, eighth attempt to get to his mother. Um, 
I simply, you know, I, I drove the route. I could describe the sound that the car made on the, the clicking on the seams of the road. I, I counted how many steps he went up the, the trailer where him, his mother lives. I walked the exact same route that he had walked to get to his mother who was laying in her bed at the back of the trailer so I could say he goes left, he goes right. I'm, I'm trying to use all those details to build that emotion. But I don't want to hit you over the head with it. Um, people don't like being led by the nose in any way. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to be. It's t- much stronger when you do that. I, I totally agree, and that's what I so appreciated. I don't want to be told what to think. Right. I want to be told a good I don't story. Either. Yeah. And you told a great story. Thank you. So, one of the things, though, that as I recall, you were really frustrated with uh, while you were working on this was that people would ask you for help yeah. along the way. You're a reporter, they find out you're a reporter, they want to know if they can have some money, will you help them? put their kids through school, and, and you're having to tell the whole time you're in Central America working on this story, you're having to say no, no, no to all of these people so that you can tell this story. That must have been really conflicting. Um, it's very hard, and I had done a story prior to Enrique, just prior to Enrique's journey called Orphans of Addiction. It had been a um, uh, finalist for the public service in Pulitzer, um, and it was about one in five kids in America who grows up with a parent addicted to drugs or to alcohol, and I'd spent months trailing a three-year-old girl whose mama was a heroin and crack addict, spending time in crack houses in Long Beach, California, and when that story came out, there was a real firestorm about uh, why didn't you help that girl? Why didn't you immediately turn her into child welfare authorities? I felt she was neglected. She wasn't being overtly abused, and she had people around her who were kind of watching over her. And I felt like I could have helped that girl... Um, but she had been called into the child welfare hotline four times, including by doctors, and nothing had happened. But I felt if I put her on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, something would likely happen. And if I could um, use her misery, and this may sound terrible, but use her misery, uh, show what she was going through to get people to read to the end of the story and understand what was happening with these children and that um, this kind of abuse leads to this generational cycle that costs taxpayers $200 billion a year in health care costs and criminal justice costs. Um, if I could use that story to move people and create systemic changes, which the story did. It created huge changes in child welfare systems from Alaska to Connecticut to Los Angeles. So I held off on turning into the child welfare authorities. Instead, I told her story. But I got roasted by people when that story came out. Were you a journalist or were you a human being? Because apparently we cannot be both, Dean. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Nor can we be activists. Nor can we be activists. And so I took that to heart. And when I started reporting Enrique's journey, I really thought about when was I going to help people? What was the line? And I really, at the beginning, described to people, I cannot help you in any way. Uh, my job is to report the reality I see in front of me. As a journalist, I cannot help you and change that reality and then 
convey an altered reality to readers. That's considered uh, unethical. I can't pay you for to give me information because you might tell me what you think I want to hear to get paid. And so, again, it's all in surface of not corrupting information, of providing readers the best uh, information. So there are reasons that we do these things, but it's very difficult that 40 times a day on top of a train, people would ask me for food or money or help in some way. And for me, the line is, are you an imminent danger? If you are in imminent danger, and I'm not also in imminent danger, then I will step in and I will try to help you. But I can't use anything after that of your story because I've changed it. Um, most of the people I saw were miserable. They weren't in imminent danger. And I, again, it may sound terrible, but I believe that there's a value in showing that misery in gritty detail, hopefully getting you to read to the end of my story and educate yourself about an issue that I'm writing about. Get your hair on fire and want to do something about this problem that I've described. That's what I view as my goal. Sure, yeah. sure. So the image I have, and it's a, it's a maybe a cliche to you, but in, uh, I've heard it used in situations like what you're just describing. Instead of repeatedly pulling people out of the river, Let's go farther up and find out who's pushing them in there in the first place. Right. And that's what journalism can do is tell that big story that says, okay, here's the problem. Right. We could, we could save this individual, perhaps, but, right. we, but we aren't going to find out what's pushing them in the river. Right. But that's a hard call. That's a really hard call. I think in the end, what's come of Enrique's journey, it was a hard call every day, every night. You wake up at 2 a.m. wondering, did I draw the line in the right place? I did help some people. I had a girl who had just been gang raped by a river where I had just been the previous day, and she was locked up in this jail cell, and her rapists were across the hall screaming over, when we all get deported back to this one town in Guatemala by the Mexican authorities, our homies control that town, we're going to finish you off. I made sure that she was not deported to that town, but to another town that her homies did not control. So I did help several migrants along the way who I did feel were in imminent danger. But Enrique, I meet him in northern Mexico. He's lost that scrap of paper with his mama's phone number in North Carolina. He's struggling to wash cars and come up with $10 so he can call Honduras again, get his mom's phone number again, and keep going. I've got a cell phone in my purse the whole time. I don't offer it to him because that would change the course. He, his whole being is centered around coming up with that 10 bucks for the two weeks that I'm with him. That's the so story you're telling. So I don't hand right. him my phone. And some people would say, well, you're a horrible human being. I believe that that's watching the story play out so I can tell the most gripping story that will move you. That's what yeah. I'm trying to do. Yeah. Wow. You know, one of the, uh, um, one of the, the most beautiful scenes in Enrique's journey. I've told you one of the saddest, you know, where he gets, he gets mugged and loses that phone number. But it's through that one state in Mexico where people are actually tossing provisions to the migrants. They're cheering them on. They're looking out for them. They're actually helping them along the way. And I just thought, that's, that's actually a beautiful, beautiful scene in there. But it's the, the whole book is this tension of these beautiful scenes of, of uh, compassion 
Yeah. And then these other scenes of unbelievable brutality. And I think as a writer, in the bleakest places, you need to look for the positive. I spent time in the dump in, Tijuana, in, in, in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. It is a hideous place. I burned all my clothes after I came out of that dump and my shoes. Uh, but there are children playing soccer in that dump in the middle of this squalor. And they find joy even in the worst places. And most of these kids have been robbed or beaten or raped before they get out of the first of 13 states that they're going to have to cross. It's a heart, it is, it is the heart of darkness. But in South Central Mexico, there were these places where there would be a curve in the tracks and um, ten, people would hear that train whistle and I'd see 10 or 30 people just run out of these tiny humble huts with these bundles of food in their arms and they'd start to wave and smile and shout out and they'd throw bread or tortillas or uh, bottles of coffee or whatever fruit was in season. So when Enrique passed through, he got these um, uh, oranges and I had suddenly these uh, branches of bananas thumping on top of my head on top of the train. And if people had nothing, they would... Um, they would give bottles of tap water, and if they didn't even have that, I'd watch them line up next to the tracks, and, and they'd put their hands together, and they'd say this silent prayer for these migrants as they pass by. It was so moving because um, they're the poorest Mexicans who live along the tracks. I mean, they make a dollar a day. They could, be, they could barely feed their children, and they were giving a little of what they had. And all of them said, I am doing this because... It's the Christian thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Sonia, I know that this is what Jesus would do if he were standing in my shoes. And I was thrilled today here at the university to see you all gathering uh, toiletries and other items to put together, um, bundles of things that migrants need to give to asylum seekers across the border. So you have your own food throwers here. Oh, nice, nice, nice. I'll pass that along. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Very cool. You know, one, one of the things that you keep coming back to in both telling Enrique's story, but also in, in other stories, is that you say that when people leave their home country to come into the United States... It's actually an act of love. And I, I can hear the, the, the left, politi- the political left, just begin to, to, uh, uh, to say, oh, even, even we wouldn't say that. And I can hear the people on the political right just howl about your bleeding heart liberalism and calling this, calling this love. But... Because of the experience with the person who worked in your home and you heard about her situation, that's, that's what sort of started this, isn't it? Is that you were trying to write a story about love. Yeah, I'm, so this story really, you know, usually for stories, I decide on a big topic, hunger, drug addiction. Right. I go to talk to a bunch of academics at universities and say, what's happening new within this issue? And then I find a narrative thread to tell that new story through, whether it's a, 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 a school, an individual, a street, uh, one narrative thread to tell a story. Um, but with this, it, it came to me in my own home. I, um, I had a woman who cleaned my house uh, twice a month in Los Angeles. And one day I asked her if she wanted to have more children. I thought she had one young boy. 
And she was normally this chatty and bubbly woman, and she just started sobbing. And she told me about these four children that I didn't know about that she had left behind in Guatemala. She said, I'm a single mom. My husband left me for another woman. Most days, Sonia, I could only feed them once. At night, they would cry out to me with hunger, and I had nothing left to give them. And as she showed me that morning, I still remember how she would gently coax them to roll over in bed at night in Guatemala, and she would say, I would tell them, sleep face down so your stomach doesn't growl so much. And she had left them in Guatemala, and she had come north to work. Sending um, money back. Sending money back every month. She wanted them to be able to eat, and she had only been able to go to the third grade herself. And so she wanted, out of love, she wanted something better for them. She was willing to not see them for 12 years, to live with a few photographs of her children, to work multiple jobs, on her knees, scrubbing uh, floors, scrubbing toilets, so that they could have something better. Um, but unfortunately, many of the children don't view it that way. They, I, and I've interviewed hundreds of them. They believe, you know, mom said she was leaving for one or two years, and life in America perhaps was tougher than she envisioned, but she didn't send for me or come back in one or two years. This took 10 years. And right. so they have this uh, resentment and even hatred towards their mothers for leaving them. So, so that's the other piece I wanted to address. So on the one hand, it's a love story. Immigration is a love story where people come so that they can provide for the people they love. They sacrifice enormously. And then in Enrique's case, he just missed his mom. Yeah. And look at what he went through to just find his mom. Yeah. That's a love story, too. Yeah. I mean, I I believe that uh, migration should involve families as a whole, Uh, either staying in their home countries together or coming together. Because I think as with divorce in the United States, whether and you're tearing families apart uh, between countries, Um, There's just a lot of damage that occurs. I go into schools. I've gone into schools here in San Diego where I meet teachers, K through 12, who live these separations and still have enormous resentment towards their mothers uh, for this. So I I think overall immigration benefits our country, benefits us economically, and benefits us in many ways. But I think in some ways migrants are really harmed by migration through these separations. And the other group that's really harmed are people who don't have a high school degree who are being forced to compete with certain immigrants in certain industries like construction and have seen some downward pressure on their wages because of this competition. So again, it's not a black and white story. And mm-hmm. and um, you but know, this, this is what I appreciate about how you've written about it, though, is that you made sure you didn't make it a black and white story. It isn't either all this. I mean, people on the left can't stand you. People on the right can't stand you. Right. So that just strikes me as <laughs> way to go, Sonia. <laughs> you, you. You've, you've annoyed everybody. Yeah. In, in fact, I think one of the favorite things I've ever heard you say. Uh, uh, in published works or just in, in our, our conversation today was, you are happiest. Let me see if I got this right. You understand what I'm, where I'm going? Yes. You want to say it? Uh, I'm happiest when I'm out there in the middle of the mud, rolling around in the mud, just really soaking in a story and, and reporting. And, and what was the other piece? And asking... And asking annoying questions asking is what really you said. Asking annoying questions. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that, yes. That's where you're yes. happiest. Well, I went to Honduras last year, and I pissed off the president of Honduras. And I also pissed off the head of their FBI, calling him an assassin. Um, so, 
I may not be going back for a, a bit. <laughs> so, so, so let me shift for a second, and let's let's talk about a book that has gotten um, a lot of interest. <laughs> yeah, you you didn't think I was going to avoid the book American Dirt, did you? Yeah. So I want to talk about the book American Dirt. Um, Do you all know what American Dirt is? Yes, you haven't yeah, yeah, been yeah. living under a rock. Yeah, okay. But l- let me just ask it this way. What's wrong with a person who is not Hispanic telling a, a, a story about a Hispanic mom and child? What's wrong with that? That seems to be one of the things that she's criticized for. Yeah, and I don't think that that criticism was uh, the criticism I would have made. Um, I think anyone can tell any story. Um, I think that if you have a knowledge of a country, you, uh, which she seemingly did not, uh, if you understand the culture of a, of a place, you speak the language, which she did not. Um, you know, when I was on top of the trains, um, there's a trust that happens when When I walk down the streets of Los Angeles, if a Latino walks down the street, they look at me and they nod, like, you're one of me. You're one of us. Black people do it. Walk down the street, nod. You're one of us. There's an understanding there. There's a trust. A journalist has to build trust. It's the very first thing you must do because you're trying to get that person to spill their guts and tell you everything, right? Yep. So that's the first tenet of journalism. So I think that by being Latina, speaking Spanish, understanding the culture, waving my hands around like we do, um, it built a trust so that People of equal abilities, if you have a white dude who was trying to do this on top of the trains and you had uh, me trying to do this, I think I probably would have done it better because I had those advantages. That doesn't mean the white dude couldn't have written Enrique's Journey. It's possible. Um, but I think because of the tools that I brought to this, to, to this task, um, I think I probably did it better if someone of equal ability who was white. Sure. Um, so uh, I, th- I, don't, I don't think that's a real argument. I think that there are some problems with, I, I mean, I think some, some parts of that book are stereotypical. I read it and I didn't have a sense that I was really in Mexico. It could have been kind of told from any country where there were cartels and there were dangers. It's really a story uh, of a mother doing whatever she can to protect her child, which is again a universal theme. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the Spanish feels like it's she used Google Translate, like she drops in these Spanish words to say, see, I know Spanish. She uses abuela for mother, which is like clearly wrong. Okay, okay, uh, okay. Okay, and, so, um, so, so she wrote a bad book. So, so no, it's not what, a bad book. Just, just don't Actually, buy it. It's not a bad book. It's, it, I wouldn't say that it's The Grapes of Wrath, which is what it was advertised as. Right. I wouldn't say it's a terrible book. I'd say it's something in between. It's a it's a narco thriller, yeah. but they kind of portrayed it as you know the grapes of wrath of our time, the definitive immigration story. So I think it was sold in the wrong way, kind of puffing it up as something that it was not. And I think many Latinos were just pissed off because she got a reported one point seven million dollars. She got an Oprah to sign on. She got Clint Eastwood to do the movie. And many of us have had to uh, kind of beat down the door of the publishing industry, which is very white. I mean, I think there are three black editors. There's one Muslim editor. There's the big five publishers. And 
there's not a lot of diversity there and not a lot of acknowledgement that, uh, you know, you have to go beyond... I mean, universities have struggled with this, right? Sure. They all they all assign the the canon, you know, all the dead white guys, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but there are other stories that matter too, and that's what I've seen with Enrique's journey. So many Latino kids, immigrant kids, who read this and say, "There's such a pride in having my story told and feeling that it matters too, and that it's part of the fabric of this nation's story." I think we need to broaden what we read, and the gatekeepers have not really allowed that to happen. So I was told when my agent went to try to sell this that no one would read an immigrant story. And I was told that no mother would ever leave their child. Well, this is some kind of group in an ivory tower in New York deciding that these are, uh, this is how it's going to be. And I was largely treated fine, but other people have told me about you know, a friend of mine wrote in the New York Times about trying 27 times to sell her first book and getting $20,000 for it. And I think she worked on it for three or four years. So when you hear that, you know, you've been beating your head against the door to get in uh, the gates for decades and this woman comes and, you know, she, she, um, she passes herself off as kind of small, a little bit Puerto Rican, and that she has an undocumented husband, but, oh, she fails to mention that he's from Ireland. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of hey, disingenuous. Hey, the Irish are people, the too. Irish Come are people on. Too, yes. Don't be bagging yes. on the Irish. All right, all right. Okay, so I just wanted to bring that up. All right, so... I, I think we need more. The, the The real beef was that there's not enough diversity in this industry, and diverse stories are not being told and are not being bought and are not being promoted the the incredible way that her book was being promoted as the you know the immigrant story of the okay. century. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So let me start to wrap this up this way. I thought of you when I came across a speech that Margaret Atwood gave to uh, Amnesty International. Uh, where she said it was the artist's imperative to engage with political issues. And this is her quote. Such material enters a writer's work not because the writer is or is not consciously political, but because the writer is an observer, a witness, and such observations are the air that she breathes. This is kind of what you've done, isn't it? You've just kind of gone in, Breathed that air, looked around, and you and you kind of told that story. Is that? Yeah, and I, I tend to go where the other journalists don't. If they're all at the border, I'm going to go to Honduras and write about root causes. I'm going to write last year about the killing of women. Why? Why are why are 98 percent of women's killings never investigated and lead to a conviction? Why are four in ten women who are murdered mutilated in a way that goes far beyond what's needed to kill them? Um, why does 30 to 40 percent of the budget of Honduras go to corruption? Why do they say that there are 85,000 teachers in Honduras, but 30,000 of them don't exist? Why do they give out medicines that are really flower pills and thousands of people die because of this kind of medical corruption? Um, I'm trying in a very factual way to put those bricks together and show people that until that changes, um, people are going to keep coming. You can spend $23 billion a year. You can build a big-ass wall, uh, <laughs> and they're going to keep coming. They're going to find a way. Their house is on fire, and they're going to find a way to get out of that house. So 
Let me just ask this for uh, the sake of people who are in the audience who are um, writers, they, they're journalists. You've met some of them today, some mm-hmm. of our student journalists. Um, what advice do you have for the people who want to go into journalism, just want to be these kinds of, uh, what if they want to be you? Uh, what, what advice would you have for them? You know, I think as the industry has shrunk, at the LA Times where I used to work, we went from 1,400 journalists to 400. I think the tendency is to try to kind of bite off little pieces of stories and um, be less ambitious and produce more. But um, I, I think it's really important to try to look out and see what are the biggest issues of our time and how can I tell a story in an incredibly compelling way that people will want to read that story to the end and be, be, be uh, compelled to do something about this issue that I've described. So I think we need to be much more ambitious about the stories that we tell. Um, what, how do we address the problems of K through 12? How do we address drug addiction? How do you tell those stories in a way um, that really help people understand them? Because I think, in a way, we're, we're so bombarded with information now. I mean, I spend two hours every morning just reading four newspapers and ten listservs, and I come out of it more confused than ever. And I, I feel like we're just hit by so much information. But in a way, we have less clarity about what are the big issues What's what's the real problem with our K through 12 education, and how do you solve those problems? And I think, especially if you've covered an issue for a long time, I mean, I I would urge new journalists to try to think big, and also try to think not just uh, about problems, because I think we have a really good tendency to throw this steaming turd in your lap and say, you figure it out. Here's mm-hmm. the problem. You figure it out. Mm-hmm. I think we need to do a lot more solutions journalism where we not only describe the problem, but we try to tackle what are the solutions? How can we move forward to make this uh, better? But I think if someone like me who's written about immigration for 30 years, I know what works and I know what doesn't work. I know that, you know, uh, I mean, I can go back to China. They built the mother of all, of the, all walls mm-hmm. and it didn't keep the Mongols out. So uh, we can go back a long way or I can show you examples uh, more uh, today. Um, I think there are three things that will work to address the root causes, be more compassionate towards people who are arriving at our southern border while we try to work with these countries to fix things. And... Um, And I think that we do need to deport people who do lose their asylum cases because I think Democrats need part of their plank on immigration to be we believe in the rule of law, which pisses off a lot of people on the left Mm -hmm. when I I say that. Mm -hmm. So I I think we need to um, think big and when we know an issue well, say this is what's what, you know, and try to guide people to some real solutions on these very polarizing, Mm -hmm. difficult issues that we're facing. Sonia Nazario, thank you for bearing witness, and thanks for being with us at our Writers' Symposium tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.